these three chapters, we're doing two of the three today, are either the most boring reading you will encounter in the Bible or the most difficult Gordian knot you will ever come across. Do you know what the Gordian knot was? When Alexander the Great was conquering everything in the 300s BC, he came across one kingdom and there was this giant knot, a physical knot tied of huge ropes, the kind of ropes you tie ships up with, you know, the kind that are, you know, the yay thick and bigger and so forth. If you can imagine this enormous knot that was suspended in the throne room of this kingdom, the Gordian knot, and there had been some kind of prophecy probably, probably ascribed to the, the, um, the, the oracle at Delphi that it wouldn't be until someone could unravel the Gordian knot that that kingdom would finally fall. Alexander the Great got there with his Greek armies and the king just smiled at Alexander and recited the prophecy and Alexander smiled back, took out his sword and cut the thing in half and it fell to pieces unraveling the Gordian knot and then Alexander, as the courtiers were shocked in horror, well that's not what we thought and by that time they had all been run through you know, and, 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 and that was the end of the kingdom. But uh, there are some challenges in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 1, uh, that relate to uh, the last king of Israel, because that's the time we're talking about, is when Hoshea was the last king of Israel in his last days. And the related passages that are in 2 Kings that relate to this and back and forth. And I debated, should I mention it? Should I take up a whole month of class periods talking about it with you and exploring some of the nooks and crannies, although a month wouldn't get us even halfway through all of it? Or should I just not even mention it? So I decided I would just kind of mention it and maybe we'll just walk past and just keep going. But maybe, maybe a little bit of some of it. Let's just get to the first verse and go on from there. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he ruled as king in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. So most of the kings of Judah and Israel, I have mentioned, did not live um, to their 50th or 60th years. Um, David, Solomon, sure. But after them, the, these kings, many of them had very short lives. Uh, many of them died. One of the kings of Israel actually committed suicide and all kinds of things were happening. But this guy, Hezekiah, he's 25 when he takes the throne, 29 years. How old does he live? 54. For a king of Judah, that's pretty good. That's... Uh, What's that young guy who just joined us? Pastor Ilhoffen is about 54. Um, not quite, so he's a couple years younger than I am. Uh, so that's, there we go. Um, the problem here is that his dad, uh, Ahaz, was 20 when he became king and ruled 16 years. How old was Ahaz when he died? 35, 36. How old was Ahaz when 
Hezekiah was born. My math says 11. Uh, so uh, now that's, that's, uh, that's, that's going like from January to January though. And not all birthdays and dates go that way. For example, in my family, the two sons who are the farthest apart in their school years are actually the closest together in their calendar years. So it, that, that's a weird thing, but that, that's exactly true. Um, and it could be that, that, his, that has a, first of all, could Ahaz have fathered a child at 11? I don't think puberty goes that way. I think it's unlikely. However, if we just allow months to pan out at the beginning and ending of years and think about the differences between Hebrew chronology and ours and when's the beginning of the year and when's the end of the year and how do things get counted, could a young man at 13 or almost 14 father a child? And yeah, that could happen. In our culture, that would raise a couple eyebrows. I think especially four eyebrows. Her moms and dads, right? Uh, especially. But it could, it could take place, right? Um, so that's my Gordian knot uh, answer, which is interesting because this guy, the, the, the book I've been talking about, about our chronology, Edwin Teeley and the Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. This one was published in 1951. He wrote his first essay in about the 1931 or so, but 51 is the date of this particular document. And Teeley goes into a lot of chronological possibilities only looking at years and not at other, other things like how old was the guy? And me, I, I almost always think in terms of if I were the dad. That's just, that's become my worldview. And, 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 and is, is that just a difference between me and Professor Teeley? That he didn't think like a dad, he thinks like a very cold mathematical scholar. And I think more as a father about these things. But I, 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 my eyebrows still go up. I think my grandpa even would have, would have, would have questioned an 11-year-old dad. But Tilly doesn't. He doesn't even bring it up. So, so but that's an interesting uh, point. Another, another issue about all of this is, uh, does anybody know off the top of their head, and I do because it's been drilled into me as if a rivet was placed into my brain with this date attached. When did the northern kingdom of Israel fall? What year? Anybody know? 722. That's the year we were all... Now, don't write that down. <laughs> because, because, get this, it's fake news. Uh, 722 is fake news. Uh, uh, so the, the Bible tells us, and also other outside sources that are not connected to the Assyrian Empire, because it, it was Assyria that conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, let me see if this thing works now. Hey, okay, there we go. So here, here we have approximately 741, the birth of King Hezekiah of Judah. 732, around that time, is the accession of 
Hoshea, who was the last king of the north, of Israel. Then in 723 or 22, the fall of Samaria. And this is a key point of all of this. We do know for a fact that Sargon became king of Assyria the following year, 722. Um, that's well attested. And wow, did the Assyrians ever give good, cool names to their years. So unlike everybody else, where it's, this is the fourth year of this and that person, and this is the second year after that person, the Assyrians just named everything after whatever military commander or pop star was big that year. They really did. Um, it's almost like, uh, 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 the, what, would, what would the first year of Elvis be? Anybody know? 1955. That's when rock and roll started, and that would be Elvis. So at that, in our culture, if we did what the Assyrians did, 1955 would be Elvis. You know, and 1964 would be the Beatles. You know, and, that, that's, and then 1974 would be Watergate. You know, get it? That's how they did, that's how the Assyrians did things. They just named them. And uh, so many of their years were simply, this is when the king fought this war or that war or when this general won or that general won or somebody at home did something really interesting like built a temple. And so all of the Assyrian names for their years are, are, are human beings' names. And uh, I might even just show you, it's called the eponym list. It's vast. And with just a little bit of chronology and, and, uh, and synchronism, you can figure out what year is what and therefore know what all the years are. All you need is one or better yet two, and I think we have five synchronisms with the Assyrian eponym list. So um, uh, uh, 831 BC is the year of, of Nishpatibel, the governor of Kela. You know, that's just how it goes. And, uh, and it goes on and on and on and on like that for, for a couple centuries. It's called the Assyrian eponym. An eponym is uh, uh, just named after a person. The, what, would, what would the French say? The person du jour, the, the person of the day. Oh, what does Time Magazine do? Person of the year, man of the year, that kind of thing. Um, and you're... Every time they do that, I'm like, oh, why that person? I never, but that's not my decision, so. I thought it should have been Pastor Sutton for like 20 years. It was never Pastor Sutton. He should have been man of the year. All right. Anyway, Sargon in 722 becomes king. And all of the Assyrian records written around that time say that Samaria fell to King Shalmaneser, Sargon's father. The Bible says that Samaria fell to King Shalmaneser of Assyria. The, um, the Aramean records, under outside document, comment on Samaria, their enemy, falling to King Shalmaneser. But then in the last two years of Sargon's reign, many, many years later, Sargon starts taking credit for the fall of Samaria. And the problem, and so I, that's why I called it fake news. He just makes a statement because Sargon learned what many leaders learn 
which is that the more often you say things, the more people will just start to believe you. All you have to do is say it out loud in public and people will think that's true and then other people start to say it and pretty soon nobody can disprove it anymore hardly. And so Sargon does that. He takes credit for the, for the fall of Samaria. Um, but we know from Sargon's own records, he never left um, Asher, the capital of Assyria. He never left for the first two years of his reign. He was nowhere near Samaria in the 720s, and he wasn't even king in 723 yet. So he had to take care of some things around, and then he started going off on other campaigns. And so if he ever did make it to Samaria, it was what we would today call a mopping up campaign. Not much. He just went over. Um, I remember uh, there was a movie when I was a kid called Dragon Slayer. And in the movie, this young man goes through all kinds of adventures and finally kills a dragon. It's a very dramatic thing. And then when, 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 when he's standing over the, smol the smoldering corpse of this dragon that he blew up, um, the king of the land shows up in a, in a carriage, takes out a sword, walks up to the smoking corpse and touches it with a sword. And then they all hail our king, the dragon slayer, and he takes credit for it. You know, that's, that's what I kind of think happened with... Uh, with Sargon and Assyria. So the, the scholarly impression is that Samaria fell in 723 B.C., not 722 B.C. Um, wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean for that to take 15 minutes. I'm sorry, but it did. Um, and then, uh, the, as you're working through chronology of this time, Hezekiah appears to become king of Judah around the year 716. But in Kings, we're told that that was the third year of Hoshea, king of Israel. But it seems like Hoshea was dead when Hezekiah... Like, Didn't I tell you this is a Gordian knot? This is, so if you're just reading and not thinking about the chronology and the problems and things, you just happily like skip past this and get to, the, get to Passover, which we're getting to, and uh, you don't think about it, but it's, it's, it's there. Maybe sometime I'll take you through all of it. But if you're not interested in that, that's okay too. I am, but maybe not everybody has to be. You know, I also have a fascination and a passion for one particular Hebrew verb stem that I wrote a paper on. I, it took me 10 years to write it. I got to deliver it in February three years ago and it, during a snowstorm that was so bad that this major pastor's conference, um, uh, <laughs> I think that there were um, seven of us left and Pastor Sutton was one because he was my ride home. And the guy whose church we were at and two or three other guys, everybody else, including our entire staff, had already left. And this, 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 this paper I had been working on for, like I said, a decade had no audience at all when I finally got to read it and deliver it. The paper? Yeah. The P.A.L. stem. Hebrew, Hebrew has seven verb stems. Um, if I use the word kill, this is what the seven stems mean. 
The light or Karl stem means to kill. The nifal or passive means he was killed. The piel means to slaughter. The pual means he got slaughtered. The hifil means I caused him to kill somebody else. The hofal means I caused him to be killed by somebody else. And the hitpayel is I killed myself. That's how the Hebrew verb works. The pl, the third one in there, uh, as you're reading various grammars and you read things that some of our own professors have said over the years, uh, Professor August Pieper, who wrote a commentary on the second half of Isaiah, Professor Paul Eichmann, in some of his class notes, said things about various things, and, and, and then other commentaries on, on Old Testament books you start to encounter all these different uses of the PL stem that are not just intensive to go from kill to slaughter, for example. Like in Job, what did Job's wife, it's almost the only thing she says in the whole book, what did Job's wife tell Job to do? Curse God and die. But she doesn't say Baruch for curse, that means bless. She says Barek, which is PL which takes the meaning and inverts it. So uh, I, I found 35 different uses of the PL verb stem. One of them is it inverts the regular meaning sometimes. It takes one meaning and flips it. And sometimes it takes uh, um, uh, uh, a word and intensifies it by having multiple objects or multiple subjects. Or how often, and sometimes it just quickens the pace of a thing. I call that the mihar. That's the fluttering of a bird's wings. Um, to do it quickly and quickly and quickly and that kind of thing. And so all these different, so I had 33 uses with many examples, not only that I found in scripture, but I, for every example I gave, I gave a commentary or a, uh, a, 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 a Hebrew grammar book reference for where is this cited and who cited it and who talked about it, and then all these other passages that follow that. So that was the content of this paper. But nobody, I already put one person in here too to, to sleep, so I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll, um. But it's been a passion of mine ever since, and I, 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 I talk about it in my email devotions when I'm in Hebrew, when I'm in an Old Testament book, and sometimes I'll... I'll mention it without talking about the, the grammar as I just did. I may mention it in a sermon. You know, I'll say flap or flutter will show up in a sermon. That's the, that's the whole reason for this, is what, what does this language tell us about what people were doing? Because Hebrew is very uh, adjective poor. It has lots of nouns and verbs and not much of anything else. So it uses nouns and verbs as adjectives and comparatives and superlatives and things. That's what, so that's what that was all about. All right, let's get back to our text. Hezekiah. Hezekiah did right was it what was in the eyes of the Lord, like everything that his father David had done. What a thumbs up to a king. Doesn't that almost make your shoulders relax like, oh good, we've... We finally came to a, especially after the last one. Remember, his father had actually closed the temple. He shut the doors of the temple. In the first month of the first year of his reign, so right away, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the eastern square. 
He said to them, this is east in the temple, by the way. East is front in Israel. It's it's where the sunrise happens. And just because of a quirk of geography, it's how I face whenever I say my nighttime prayers. Because I sit on the edge of my bed and I realized, oh, I happen to be facing east when I do this. It's no other reason, but that's also the case. Uh, So somewhere out there, if you can see that bad circle I made, um, somewhere in that area is where they all gathered. And why out there? Because it's the front. It's the big front courtyard, right? Listen to me, you Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful. They have done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling of the Lord. They have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch of the temple, the front doors, and have extinguished the lamps. The lamps were supposed to burn always. That was one of the jobs of the high priest, make sure the lamp doesn't go out. I mean, not a difficult job, but kind of tedious. You know, Art, how often would you have to refill the candles if the oil had never run out? Yeah, yeah. And that's what they did. They had a system, but a lot of olive oil had to be bought. They have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So the wrath of the Lord is on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them into an object of terror, horror, and hissing, as you see with your own eyes. Look, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity because of this Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. He calls God the God of Israel. And just to keep us focused, what just happened is the northern kingdom of Israel got taken into captivity. Samaria has fallen. And so Hezekiah is now calling himself king of Israel. Why? Because refugees have come down from the north. And not everybody got taken away up north, just most of them, or a lot of them, or the wealthiest, or the most prominent. But there's still a bunch of people up there. And we talk about intermarriage happening happening sometime later on. That hasn't happened yet. What you have is just a remnant up north. Um, Villages where there used to be uh, 300 people, and now there are 30 I was going to put this slide and I, I didn't get to it. I found a village in, um, I believe it's China. It's kind of an isolated village. It had 3,000 people once. Now they're down to 30. And a girl who lost her grandfather um, made a little statue out of straw with his clothes and a little face of her grandfather in the garden, as if he's still there in the garden. And then everybody in, in the town said, do that for me too. As, as, I don't know if it's a disease or what it is. But, and so the whole town, it's, and now it's kind of creepy because there's thousands of these, or many, many hundreds of these statues. Of, they're, they're really just sort of scarecrows, but they're stuffed with the person's clothes and a little face doing their ordinary day-to-day things or sitting at the bus station 
or the town is populated by these dummies. And the, but there are a, a few people left, you know, trying to carry out their life. But it's, but it's eerie and, uh, and uh, some things you wish you didn't run across. You know, and I ran across that. Uh, yeah. Now you, my sons, notice he calls the Levites his sons. Do not be negligent, for you are the ones the Lord has chosen to stand in his presence, to minister to him, to serve him, and to burn incense to him. And these are the Levites who responded. From the descendants of the Kohathites, and you have the names there, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah. I just want you to notice the underlined words, okay? I'll go to the next. So here are the Kohathites. And on this screen, Merari and Gershon. Those are the three families of Levi, okay? So there are men here from all of the different families of Levi, including, interestingly, in the middle of verse 13, the descendants of Asaph. And Asaph was an influential, critical uh, Levite in the days of David, wrote many of the, many of the, of the, of the Psalms and so forth. Um, I believe he also wrote the book of Job um, and other things. I can defend that some other time if you want me to. Um, and from the descendants of Jeduthun, Shemaiah and Uziel. So uh, they gathered their brother Levites, consecrated themselves, and went to cleanse the house of the Lord as the king commanded by the words of the Lord. What's the difference between cleansing something and cleaning it in this context? Well, what would just cleaning it be? Dusting, sweeping, physically washing it off. Well, in this case, I think there's some other difference between clean and cleanse because Hezekiah's father had done something. He had desecrated the temple. So there's stuff in there that doesn't belong there. How can I illustrate this? Uh, um, what if among the choir robes was a nice uh, assortment of, say, ACDC t-shirts, you know, or Def Leppard or something like that? Um, or, or, and those are just rock groups. And what if, what if it was an actual, like, a Satanist cult robe or a, a KKK gown or something like that? Or, like, when I was a vicar, I had one of the uh, homeless guys who was a member of our congregation in Milwaukee who every week would bring me, he'd say, Vicar, I got another one, and he would bring me a broken um, uh, um, uh, rosary. He would find broken rosaries. I assume he found them, but he would find broken rosaries in the garbage around Milwaukee, and he'd bring them to me and say, Vicar, here you go, fix it and give it to somebody. Am I going to be handing out rosaries? <laughs> you know, but... He thought I probably would. For a while, I had quite a collection. Um, they didn't come with us when we left that congregation, but uh, I won't say what happened to them. But Do you guys know what a rosary actually is? Do you know what the, what, the, what, the, what the ratio is? I believe it's 10 small beads to one large one. 10, 1, 10, 1, 10, 1. And that's Hail Marys to our fathers as you work your way around. I don't know if it's, if it's 7 of those or 12. It might depend. But that's, that's working your way around the rosary. So say a rosary and you get, you know, you say each prayer as you, f you know, feel one. So a blind 
nun could do it, you know, by just feeling your way through. That's exactly the kind of thing Luther found when he went, you know, and he found, he found more fragments of the true cross than, and he could have built a whole church with it because there's so many fragments of the true cross and things like that. And exactly how many jawbones did John the Baptist have? Because there were like 15 and things like that. And, or, or 60 fingers of John the Baptist in various shrines and things like that. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.